This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drugs and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. The man finished his work at midnight. For the past 16 hours, he had been sewing jackets for his church, the Alamo Christian Foundation, to ship across the country and sell. But his day still wasn't over. He walked across the street from the warehouse to the church. A prayer vigil was going on inside. The man took his place alongside dozens of other worshipers, all crowded around an ornate casket. For more than four months, these devoted Christians had held a vigil over the embalmed body of their former leader, Susan Alamo. They prayed in shifts all day and night for her return from the dead. On this night, the man did his best to fight off his exhaustion and hunger to pray for Elder Susan's resurrection. He believed her final prophecy, delivered by her husband, Tony, that she would one day live again and lead the righteous to heaven. But at the end of his shift, her body still lay lifeless in her casket. The man went home to sleep. He needed it badly. After all, tomorrow, he would do it all again. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into the Alamo Christian Foundation, an evangelical Christian sect founded by Tony and Susan Alamo in 1969 that preached the imminent second coming of Jesus Christ. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com merch for more information. 
You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Last week, we examined Tony and Susan Alamo's early upbringings. After growing up in small towns, they both moved to Hollywood to pursue careers in show business. While neither of them found lasting success, the two discovered a mutual talent for scamming homeless youths. Their following grew quickly by promising the less fortunate spiritual salvation. By 1969, when Tony was 35 and Susan was 44, the cult had attracted nearly 100 followers. The next year, the Alamos bought a large tract of land in Saugus, California, about an hour from Los Angeles. In less than two years, a large compound was constructed on the land, and almost 200 acolytes were brought to live and work there. All the profits of their labors were passed directly to Susan and Tony. This week, we'll take a closer look at what life was like for the followers of the Alamo Christian Foundation as it grew. We'll examine how Tony and Susan's greed propelled the cult toward more extreme and exploitative practices, eventually leading to their downfall. 1971 was a banner year for the Alamo Christian Foundation. Its Saugus compound had become an insular community all of its own, featuring a large church, cotton and vegetable fields, living accommodations for hundreds of people, and a massive mansion for the elders of the church, Susan and Tony Alamo. Despite growing the foundation from a few street kids to almost 200 followers, the Alamos were far from satisfied. They had an insatiable appetite for wealth and relished the control they exercised over their followers. The Alamos dictated when their acolytes ate, how much they worked, and when they were allowed to leave the compound, if ever. Their hundreds of followers believed them to be messengers of God, people called to lead a select few to heaven when the day of judgment came. As Susan and Tony aggressively expanded the foundation, there was one person they worried might stand in their way. Susan's daughter from her second marriage, Chris, who had witnessed the beginnings of her mother and stepfather's foundation. She knew their talk about bringing people to God was a grift. In 1970, when Chris was 20, she moved in with a short-term boyfriend. She became pregnant a few months later. The two broke up before the following year when she gave birth to a daughter. She went back to Saugus to live with her mother and stepfather. She had always had a strained relationship with Susan and Tony. Four years earlier, Tony had sexually assaulted Chris, and Susan had refused to believe he was the aggressor. Susan still refused to believe what Tony was capable of. Chris had only returned because she had no source of income and nowhere else to go. But now that she had a child of her own, Chris didn't want the baby to be raised in the strict, manipulative environment of the foundation. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. According to Dr. Alexandra Stein, an author and expert on cults, cults isolate followers by controlling their personal relationships and restricting information. This creates a disorganized attachment bond. The bond causes dissociation, and the person is unable to think clearly about what is happening. 
Chris knew that if she raised her daughter on the isolated Saugus compound, her mother would try and manipulate and indoctrinate her daughter the same way she had with so many others. This is a key component of brainwashing. Stein continued, the lack of alternate information undermines a follower's cognitive processes. The cult can now do the thinking for them. But when Chris told her mother she wanted to leave the foundation in 1971, Susan refused. The Saugus compound was still in its infancy and needed as much money and new converts as possible. Susan demanded that Chris stay and help. According to Chris, Susan told her, don't be stupid. You're my daughter, but there is too much money and too much at stake here. Don't make me kill you. Chris had heard her mother say a lot of twisted things. She knew deep down the foundation was only a scheme to funnel money up to Susan and Tony. But this threat was a new low. She couldn't believe her mother was serious and decided it was all a bluff. Surely Susan wasn't willing to kill her own daughter, especially after Chris promised she would keep her mouth shut about the foundation's scams. She ignored her mother's warning and called a cab to take her and her baby away. But as soon as Chris hung up the phone, Tony, Susan, and several other foundation members burst into the room. They surrounded Chris while she was still holding her baby and started beating her. They punched her while she tried to protect her daughter. Chris had nowhere to run. She screamed but knew no one would come to help. Susan told her daughter they were going to beat her into a coma and tell the police she'd fallen down the stairs. While the attack was occurring, the cab driver Chris had called arrived. He knocked on the door but got no answer. He looked through a window near the door and saw a woman holding a baby being beaten by at least six people. He called the police. When officers arrived, Susan told them Chris was a drug addict. She claimed they were simply trying to restrain Chris in the midst of a drug-addled rage. The police believed her at first. Then they took a closer look at Chris's injuries. Her lip was split open. Her nose was broken. Some of her hair had been ripped out and she was bruised all over her face and chest. But before they could investigate further, the cops got another emergency call and decided to leave, despite Chris's pleas. As soon as the police left the house, Chris tried to run, but they held her down. Before she could call out, one of the foundation members struck her in the back of the head with a heavy telephone. Her vision blurred and then went black. Chris awoke a couple of hours later in her room. Her head was dripping blood and she couldn't focus her mind. Then she realized her infant daughter wasn't with her. She looked everywhere but couldn't find her. There was no one else in the house at all. Chris called the police. The same two officers came back. She explained the situation to them and this time they believed her. One of them took her to the police station, while the other went into the Alamo's mansion to search for the baby. Unfortunately, she was nowhere to be found. Susan and Tony feigned ignorance and repeated their story about Chris being an unreliable drug addict. At the police station, the phone rang, and the person on the line asked to speak with Chris. It was Susan. She told her daughter, don't say anything about who's on the phone. Susan threatened, 
If you file anything, you'll never see your daughter again. If you want your daughter, you need to leave there right now. Don't sign anything and come back to the house and get her. Chris was distraught. She was still aching from the beating, and her nerves were frayed from worrying about her baby. She hung up the phone, and shaking with fear, she walked out of the police station and took a cab to get her daughter. When she got to the house, Susan and Tony made Chris swear to keep quiet before they gave her the child. They promised legal action and threatened to take custody of the baby away from Chris permanently if she ratted them out. Scared, intimidated, and willing to do anything to get her daughter back, Chris swore to keep silent. She only wanted to leave with her baby. Satisfied that Chris had been silenced, Susan handed over her grandchild. Chris took a cab to a friend's house. It was the last time she'd ever see her mother. A few months after Chris's departure in the spring of 1971, the Saugus complex functioned like a well-oiled machine. 46-year-old Susan and 37-year-old Tony had absolute control over everyone living there through a carefully perfected system. New followers were separated from anyone they knew prior to joining the foundation for the first few months. Veteran members called overseers were responsible for keeping watch over the baby Christians, as the new converts were now called. Everything from electricity to toilet paper was distributed according to Susan and Tony's direct orders. Food was spread as thin as possible. This was a calculated tactic to create artificial scarcity. As Professor Dr. Sharam Heshmat wrote, scarcity affects our thinking and feeling. Poverty taxes cognitive resources and causes self-control failure. Poverty means making painful trade-offs and resisting more temptations depletes willpower. Susan and Tony wanted their followers mentally weakened and pliable. They rationed food and silenced criticism, creating a truly bizarre environment. One new follower was reprimanded for turning on the lights when she entered a building. Apparently, since distributing electricity was an overseer's job, the follower had exceeded her authority. They expected her to sit in the dark until the overseer arrived to flip the light switch. Evening services were the place where the Alamos played their most active role in manipulating Foundation members. They constantly reinforced the threat of eternal damnation and godly retribution should any followers decide to leave. Depending on the night, they claimed followers who rejected the word of God and the second coming of Jesus would be killed, impoverished, or drug addicted. If parables, threats, and sleep deprivation weren't enough to encourage their followers' loyalty, the Alamos had other countermeasures. Men patrolled the fenced-in compound around the clock. Members were encouraged to report rule breakers to root out the devil's influence. Punishments for breaking rules varied from forced fasting, separation from one's children or family, hard labor, beatings, and finally, excommunication from the church. In such an environment, people became suspicious of their own family and friends. With their souls at stake, church members watched each other like hawks and played right into the Alamo's hands. Coming up, the Alamo Christian Foundation soars to new heights and faces new scrutiny from the law. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In 1972... 38-year-old Tony Alamo and his wife, 47-year-old Susan, led the Alamo Christian Foundation's nearly 800 followers. They operated an enormous compound in the city of Saugus, California, about an hour from Los Angeles. By now, the compound was a world of its own. Close to 300 of those at Saugus were assigned to work in the fields, growing cotton and vegetables. The remaining members distributed resources, performed administrative duties, and most importantly, recruited new baby Christians off the streets of Hollywood. Foundation members were subjected to grueling work hours, often exceeding 12 hours per day, to support the rapid growth of the church. New buildings were constructed on the 160-acre tract of land all the time. In addition to the fields, church, and living quarters, there was also a gas station and a restaurant. No one ever left the grounds unaccompanied. Soon it was largely unnecessary for anyone to leave at all. Aside from the missionaries going to convert new followers, the two trusted overseers who bought supplies each week were the only ones who had contact with the outside world. Of course, it was a different story for Tony and Susan. They had complete freedom and made use of it more and more often to raise their public profile. They started touring churches around the country to spread their gospel and raise funds. Susan was the brains behind the ministry. She took the lead during their public appearances while Tony handled the business side of the foundation. In 1972, Tony made a deal with California farmers to supply them with cheap labor. He began siphoning workers from the Saugus fields and shipping them 90 miles north to Bakersfield. There, members worked packing peaches, tilling fields, and picking roses. Their entire paychecks went straight back to the church. When members received inheritances, social security checks, or any other form of income, it was expected that they donate the entire amount. To not do so would be covetous, and as such, would earn them a one-way ticket to hell. Thanks to Susan and Tony's church tours, people continued to flock to the foundation to save their souls from the coming Armageddon. By 1973, their following numbered above 1,000, but it wasn't enough. Even after years of being revered cult leaders, the Alamos craved wider attention to feed their ego. Dr. God Saad, a behavioral scientist, pointed out that this is common among those with narcissistic personalities. He wrote, if enough of your external validation comes from attention, it can become an addiction, a dependence on the affirmations of others in order to feel a sense of worth. Tony and Susan embarked on a grand new project, the Alamo Christian Foundation television show. Followers helped build sets and run the cameras. They recorded a number of Susan and Tony's sermons, and in 1973, they were broadcast nationally on Sunday mornings. 
Tony and Susan, now middle-aged, had finally become celebrities, just as they had dreamed when they first moved to California. Flush with cash and fame, Tony and Susan's appetite for luxury and renown only grew. They bought expensive clothing, traveled in limos, and upgraded their home. Everywhere they went, they were attended to by a retinue of servants. Tony had an assistant to light his cigar, press his suits, and cook his meals. Susan got extensive plastic surgery and accented her new look with gaudy diamonds. The gravy train showed no signs of stopping. Tony purchased property for the foundation in New York, Tennessee, and Florida. In 1975, now with more than 2,000 followers, the foundation began construction on a second compound near Alma, Arkansas. Alma had sentimental significance to Susan Alamo, as it was her hometown. But it was also an ideal location for hiding the cult from prying eyes. By now, the government had caught on to Susan and Tony's exploitative labor practices and had done some poking around. Moving the bulk of their acolytes to the other side of the country was a strategic move. Their first building project was, of course, a church. Susan chose the site to be directly across from her childhood home, which was also renovated. A school for the foundation's children was constructed next. During development, followers camped out in ramshackle huts and temporary dormitories behind the new church and school. When the school was completed, most of the members assumed living quarters would be next. They were wrong. Susan and Tony wanted more income. They ordered their army of workers to build a clothing store, a restaurant, and warehouses for food and retail products. But the Alamos hit a roadblock in 1976. The U.S. Department of Labor sued the foundation, alleging their employment practices violated the Fair Labor Standards Act. Tony and Susan, now 42 and 51 respectively, decided their best option was to drag the case out and hired an army of lawyers. The case stalled. In the meantime, the businesses opened and boomed. The Alamo restaurant was a particularly big hit. It featured Southern food and musical performances from stars such as Tammy Wynette and Dolly Parton. Bill Clinton even wrote about his visit to the restaurant in his autobiography. Yet even in the wake of this new income, an essential part of every public appearance Tony and Susan made was the finale, when they asked for donations. Their television pleas, desperate and sometimes even tearful, asked good Christians around the country to open their hearts and their pantries to donate anything they could spare to the church. The Alamos also aggressively solicited supermarkets and clothing outlets for material donations and arranged canned food drives around the country. The obvious implication was that the donated goods would be used to feed or clothe the less fortunate. In actuality, the Alamos used the collected goods to feed their followers. Any leftovers, they resold. In the warehouses they built in Arkansas, the foundation assigned hordes of people to catalog the donated food and clothing. They then removed existing tags and expiration labels on the items and replaced them with the Alamo's own. The goods were shipped across the country on Alamo trucks and resold to a network of independent supermarkets and retail stores, sometimes with inaccurate expiration dates. 
1976 alone, the Alamos made $1.3 million from reselling material donations. This was on top of any monetary donations and the profits from their other restaurants and retail businesses. The money was spent on Susan and Tony's lavish lifestyle. They built a gigantic mansion on the Alma compound. The first floor featured an enormous office for Tony, with room for a sound studio and equipment to record sermons on tape. The second story included a lavish bedroom and a luxurious bathroom. Outside, there was a custom heart-shaped swimming pool. According to the Alamos, it was necessary for the church to have a comfortable place to receive high-profile guests. The fact that the mansion was also used by the recording department meant it was a multi-purpose building. Followers were given explicit instructions not to call it a mansion. From 1977 to 1981, the Alamo Christian Foundation continued to expand. It acquired land holdings in several new states and its legitimacy grew in the eyes of the public. By 1981, 56-year-old Susan and 47-year-old Tony had close to 3,000 followers under their command. Outwardly, the two were shining examples of God's favor. They stayed in high-class hotels and ate five-star meals. They made millions each year. But behind closed doors, trouble was brewing. Sometime in the late 70s, Susan Alamo was diagnosed with breast cancer. She kept it a secret, even from Tony, for over a year. Against the wishes of her doctors, she refused medical treatment, claiming God would take care of her. But by 1981, it was obvious to everyone she was unwell. Tony finally prevailed upon her to get treatment. She agreed to have surgery to excise a tumor. But by then, the cancer had spread throughout her body. Tony stayed by her side, seeing that she got the best treatment possible. In April 1982, weeks before her 57th birthday, Susan was on her deathbed in an Oklahoma hospital. Her final words to Tony were, When I die, disband the church. You'll wreck it all. Tony lost more than his wife of 16 years. He lost a partner in crime, and the only person upon whom he could completely rely. But besides his genuine sorrow at losing Susan, he also, as always, had more material concerns. Susan had been the de facto head of the foundation since its inception. She was the primary voice of the church and largely responsible for its growth in manpower over the previous decade. Tony had been happy to play the role of passive prophet and businessman behind the scenes. But with Susan's passing, he worried that everything they had built together would fall apart, just as she predicted. He had to act fast, at the very least to delay the inevitable. He decided to stick with what he knew. Considering he had played the role of holy prophet for 16 years, he figured it was about time he start prophesying. In truth, despite giving sermons and reading Holy Scripture in front of thousands of people every week, Tony's knowledge of the Bible was spotty at best. Like so many other things, he had left that to Susan. Still, he knew the story of the resurrection, and he knew the best way to win over a crowd was by playing the hits. 
Coming up, Tony delivers an earth-shattering prophecy to his followers. Now, back to the story. In 1982, 48-year-old Tony Alamo became the sole leader of the Alamo Christian Foundation after his wife, Susan Alamo, died. He was terrified her passing would mean the end of the church. To keep followers from leaving after her death, he told them God had spoken to him once again. Susan's death was not the end. She would rise from her grave and assume her rightful place at the head of the church before Christ's return and the day of judgment. He put Susan's embalmed body on display at the Arkansas compound and instructed his followers to hold a nonstop 24-hour prayer vigil over her body. Not wanting the prayer to interrupt the foundation's revenue streams, members prayed in shifts around their work schedules. But after months, Susan still hadn't risen. Tony told Foundation members they had strayed from the Lord. He blamed them, saying, because you people aren't right with God, Susan wasn't raised. Tony was always quick to point the finger at others. He blamed society, the media, and now his own followers for his troubles. This was likely a symptom of his narcissism. As therapist Bill Eddy wrote, Narcissists need to make others their targets of blame to feel superior, which they truly believe they are. Elevating himself at the expense of his followers was the point of the vigil. If the cult disbanded, Tony wanted to protect his ego and blame his followers for not being faithful enough. After the six months, he ended the vigil and ordered a lavish marble mausoleum built for Susan's coffin. He still told church members she would be returned to life one day, if only they kept their faith. After Susan's death, Tony discontinued the Alamo Christian Foundation Corporation and replaced it with the new Music Square Church. This was an attempt to separate himself from his wife's legacy, as well as to gain tax exemption. It worked. The Music Square Church was given a tax-exempt status by the IRS in 1982, and two years later, cemented as the head of the new MSC, 50-year-old Tony decided it was time to move on from his grief over Susan. In 1984, he met Brigetta Uhlenheimer, a 42-year-old clothing store owner, while on a business trip. They fell in love. She married him, but quickly found he was not the man she thought. Susan was the only woman he had ever respected. She put him in his place, and he unabashedly followed her lead for 16 years. Now that she was gone, Tony had a renewed animosity toward every woman who didn't live up to Susan's ideal. Tony physically abused Brigitta. With this cadre of loyal followers around at all times, Brigitta felt she was being surveilled constantly. She even claimed Tony forced her to have plastic surgery to look more like Susan Alamo. She divorced him in 1985, after less than a year of marriage. His love life wasn't all that was in chaos that year. Ten years after the first charges were filed, the U.S. Supreme Court finally delivered a ruling on the Foundation's violation of labor laws. They found the church guilty and estimated that the foundation owed its employees at least $15 million in back wages. The Music Square Church's tax-exempt status was also revoked. The commissioner of the IRS stated that the church 
was so closely operated and controlled by and for the benefit of Tony Alamo that it enjoyed no substantive independent existence, that Music Square Church was formed for the principal purpose of willfully attempting to defeat or evade federal income tax. Even after the court made its ruling, there is no evidence Tony ever paid his employees. He simply continued to act illegally and put contingencies in place to dupe auditors. At this stage, his brazen criminality and ever-present dark sunglasses seemed to make him look more like a mafia don than a preacher. His personal life had not calmed down either. Tony's next wife, 40-year-old church member Elizabeth Amrine, faced the same abuse his previous wife did. Elizabeth's ex-husband, who was not a part of the foundation, noticed changes in their two children after the marriage. When the kids visited their father, they never wanted to return to their mother, even when offered parties and toys. He sued for custody in 1986, worried his children weren't attending school or being fed properly and won the case. A year later, in 1987, Elizabeth filed for divorce. None of it seemed to bother Tony, who married yet again a few months later, this time to a follower named Diana Williams. By 1988, 54-year-old Tony had been leading the foundation for nearly two decades. There were many children among the 2,000 total followers, and some had lived their entire lives in the cult. And Tony wasn't any softer on them than he was with the other Foundation members. Unruly children were whipped publicly or forced to fast, always subject to Tony's discretion. He inflicted a particularly barbaric punishment on the 11-year-old Justin Miller in 1988. Justin's transgressions included asking a science question in history class and wearing a leather scarf to school, contrary to dress code. As always, before any decision was made about punishment, school officials called Tony. As it happened, Tony knew the boy. Justin's father had left the cult on bad terms less than a year prior, but Justin and his mother had stayed. Tony ordered the boy to be publicly flogged 140 times. The tool used for the job was a wooden paddle designed by Tony and named the Board of Education. Four grown men held Justin down and flogged him. He bled from his rear for days afterward and had to go home from school to change his pants. When Justin's father heard about the beating, he was furious. He called the police and successfully got the boy removed from the compound and into his custody. The next year, in 1989, he filed criminal charges of abuse against Tony. But to bring Tony to court to answer to those charges, police had to find him first. Tony hid in Las Vegas in a rented house. A cadre of loyal church members attended to him and ensured he was still able to run the foundation businesses while he was on the lam. He also married another woman, a follower named Sharon Astkrupf, and took her into hiding with him. With Tony's resources and manpower, police had trouble locating him. But his absence played right into the hands of the IRS, who hadn't given up on collecting their back taxes. They filed $8 million in liens on church businesses and raided a clothing store run by the foundation. They also confiscated film and production equipment to sell off. 
As always, Tony fed followers lies about what was going on, explaining that the godless government was trying to stop the foundation from saving people. All kinds of conspiracies about satanic, shadowy organizations trying to take down Elder Tony whirled around the Alamo compounds. But the Leans still did their job, wreaking havoc on Tony's business. Eventually, he ordered the Arkansas compound be evacuated. Worried that federal agents would confiscate and desecrate Susan's body from the mausoleum in Arkansas, he gave specific instructions to his inner circle to move the casket to a storage unit in a hidden location. If he lost Susan, followers might begin to doubt the prophecy and his legitimacy would be compromised. His inner circle did what they were told. Meanwhile, Tony was getting stir-crazy confined to the rented home in Las Vegas. His followers moved him to Tampa, Florida to calm him down, but he was becoming increasingly unhinged. The stress led him to act irrationally. Dr. Ronald Riggio, a professor at Claremont McKenna College, stated this is not uncommon for those in positions of power. Riggio wrote, A sense of power can cause a leader to engage in exception-making, believing that rules that govern what is right and what is wrong does not apply to the powerful leader. In defiance of his inner circle's objections, Tony issued a public statement. He threatened to kidnap Judge Morris Arnold, who had originally found him guilty of violating the Fair Labor Standards Act. He claimed that he would make the judge stand trial in an Alamo Christian court before God. Naturally, this only got him in deeper trouble. Police stepped up their search operations, which had now been going on for a year. They managed to track down one of the church higher-ups and follow him back to Tony's beach house. In July of 1991, 57-year-old Tony was apprehended and sent to prison for evading the IRS. But he only served a few months before his lawyers negotiated a heavy fine instead of jail time. Tony vowed never to pay it. But the Justin Miller child abuse charges from 1989 were still waiting for him. The court found Tony guilty of felony child abuse in early 1992. Justin's family was awarded $1.5 million, and Tony was sentenced to two years in jail. Again, he evaded the California authorities, and they filed a warrant for his arrest. And even this wasn't the end of his legal troubles. Next in line was a suit by the IRS for a failure to pay his income taxes. As always, Tony's strategy was to delay, delay, delay. His lawyers again took advantage of every loophole they could find. They managed to delay the sentencing for three years, but Tony was finally found guilty of tax fraud in 1994 and sentenced to six years in prison. After his conviction, the state of California decided to drop its charges for child abuse in the case of Justin Miller, as Tony was already serving jail time. Tony told his followers the case was dropped because he was innocent. Following this legal battle, Susan Alamo's daughter, Chris, filed a suit to get possession of her mother's remains. She wanted to bury her mom in a family plot, far away from Tony's church. Despite their history, Chris still loved her mother and believed Tony had stolen her body for propaganda purposes. In 1995, Chris won the suit. 
Tony was ordered to turn over the body and pay damages, but he refused to disclose the location of the storage locker that held Susan's casket. He was found in contempt of court, but it didn't have much effect because he was already in jail. As the sentence wore on, Tony maintained control of the Foundation's activities from behind bars. He placed his most trusted lieutenants in charge of the day-to-day and made the big decisions by phone. Some of his followers and his current wife, Sharon Astkrupp, moved to Florence, Colorado to be near him. When he was transferred to another prison in Texarkana, they moved with him and settled in Falk, Arkansas, 15 miles away. Tony bristled under the oppressive environment of the prison. He hated being told what to do. To cope, he created a harem of wives he could control from the inside. Sharon showed him photos of the girls on the compound, and Tony selected which ones he wanted her to bring to the prison. When they arrived, the women circled Tony to block security cameras, while he took turns fondling the girls one by one. He took seven wives in this manner, two of them underage, while he was in jail. In 1998, after serving four years of his six-year sentence, 64-year-old Tony was released from prison. He agreed to finally bury Susan's body, but insisted on burying her in Oklahoma, 124 miles away from the family plot Chris had wanted. Chris was just happy her mother was finally at rest. Upon his release, Tony moved to Falk, where Susan and some of his followers had been living. A compound was constructed with a church, housing, and warehouses. Over time, around 200 followers were transported there to work and attend to his needs. Tony, who now had eight wives, started publicly defending polygamy and fought to have it legalized. He claimed that the Bible supported the practice, as well as taking children as brides once they started menstruating. From 1998 to 2001, Tony, now in his late 60s, took four additional underage brides, as young as 10 years old. His wives lived together in Tony's mansion in Falk. They slept with Tony and worked as his 24-hour maids and cooks. They slept in shifts, completed his ever-changing list of chores, and tried to follow his strict rules. Most of the women believed Tony was a prophet, but they also learned to fear him. He had a violent temper and would snap at arbitrary times. To keep his hands clean, he ordered his lackeys to carry out the punishments he ordered, including beatings and solitary confinement. Sometimes he would force the women to fast. For this, he would isolate them in the House of Scorn. It was a gymnasium with rooms that acted as jail cells. He also ordered physical beatings for the young girls. He had three of his adult wives hold the girls down and another one delivered the beating with a paddle. The beatings always continued until the accused party cried. The girls learned to cry quickly. Tony verbally abused his wives too. He made pig noises at them and called them ugly, comparing them to actresses or models he claimed to know. Because media was so censored inside the foundation, the girls didn't even know what the actresses or models looked like. They grew up believing they were hideous and sinful. Tony did everything he could to keep the treatment of his wives secret. 
But one follower who occasionally worked at his house, named Brenda, eventually discovered what was going on. She already had her doubts about the cult, but this pushed her over the edge. Brenda managed to escape the Falk compound in 2001. She reported what she knew to Arkansas police, but they were wary of making any moves. Tony had an army of lawyers, and they couldn't proceed without hard evidence. Years went by. Tony used his lawyers to threaten anyone who tried to come forward with lawsuits. Still, networks of former followers grew on the internet, where they traded information and personal accounts of Tony's crimes and wives. Finally, in 2008, the FBI believed they had gathered enough evidence. They raided the compound in Falk while Tony was away and took his underage wives into protective custody. The girls were terrified of the agents and feared for their lives. Tony had told them that the police would come to kill them one day. The Arkansas compound was cleared out and searched for evidence of Tony's pedophilia. Simultaneously, police in California swarmed the original Saugus compound. Unfortunately, Tony had left only minutes before they arrived. It took them five days to track him down in Flagstaff, Arizona. He was taken into custody on September 25, 2008, at the age of 74. The FBI had a LAMO, but hadn't gathered as much evidence as they had hoped during their raids. Getting his underage wives to testify was the best hope they had to ensure Tony was convicted. It took a long time to get the girls to open up, but eventually, five girls agreed to testify. It gave officers confirmation that Tony had traveled across state lines with the children and sexually abused them, a federal crime. Meanwhile, compounds all over the country were raided and children were evacuated. Police couldn't do anything about the adults who chose to stay with the church, but all underage children were taken by social services for their safety. Over the course of the next three months, hundreds of children were rescued. A jury found Tony guilty on 10 counts of sex trafficking young girls across state lines in July of 2009. He was sentenced to 175 years in prison without possibility of parole. His parting words were, I'm just another one of the prophets that went to jail for the gospel. Over the next decade, the foundation the Alamos built slowly crumbled. Shady business practices were revealed, and businesses were reclaimed to pay the damages Tony owed his victims and the followers he abused. Tony continued proselytizing from behind bars, but with diminished success. He continued to leverage his legal resources to try and wrangle a retrial or presidential pardon, but failed. On May 2, 2017, Tony Alamo died in a North Carolina prison at the age of 82. The devil was finally vanquished. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. For more information on Tony Alamo and his foundation, amongst the many sources we used, we found Debbie Shriver's book, Whispering in the Daylight, The Children of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries and Their Journey to Freedom, extremely helpful to our research. 
You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.